With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and, and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. It's sort of like you go into a crowd and you instantly have this special power where you see everything going on in the crowd. You see every weird little unusual thing in the crowd and you make sure that you point out every unusual thing in the crowd and have kind of a punchline behind it and it appears some of which you make up, some of which is a little prepared for that type of person. What is it? Like you go into a crowd and, and what happens? A while ago I was like, I'm just going to be present and in the moment and just discover those moments on stage. And it turns into this cacophony of wondrous, jazzy noise that comes from the audience because stand-up is really a conversation. It's a dialogue, but instead of them talking, they have the ability to groan or laugh or sigh or heckle or whatever it is, and it turns into this brilliant gumbo of all these emotions coming from the audience, not just joy, not just laughter. And there's all these different kinds of laughs the key to learning anything is to kind of take any difficult skill and find as many sub-skills as possible. So what would be some of the sub-skills there? Be present. Trust yourself. Be aware. Be fearless. So I've got on one of my favorite stand-up comedians, Aaron Berg. Aaron, how's it going? Good, James. How are you? Good. Now, Aaron, as you know, because you were there, I just turned 50, and I didn't even know that Scott Cohen, who's also been on this podcast, I didn't even know Scott was going to throw a party, let alone have comedians on there. And then you came on, and it wasn't quite a roast, but it was like your style. Your style of comedy, and anyway, is like permanently roasting everybody in the audience. Would you yeah. say? Yeah, I do. Uh, I involve the crowd a lot, and I make fun of people a lot, and it's very non PC. And, and I wanna, I wanna get back to your background and how you start started off. How long have you been doing stand up? Seventeen years. Uh, about eleven days ago, twelve days ago, seventeen years. Yeah, wow. yeah, long time. So, so I sort of feel like where where you can, you know, the kind of obvious ways where I can see that level of experience come through is it's sort of like you go into a crowd and you instantly 
have this special power where you see everything going on in the crowd. That's what it feels like, where you see every weird little unusual thing in the crowd and you make sure in your time allotted that you point out every unusual thing in the crowd and have kind of a punchline behind it. And it appears some of what you make up, some of which is a little prepared for that type of person. Yeah. Um, Cause you've encountered probably the same type of people over and over again. Um, but what, what is it like? Is that, uh, like you go into a crowd and, and what happens? What what do you do? I just um, a while ago I was like I'm just going to be present and in the moment and just discover those moments on stage. So that's how that style came about. Uh, now it's evolving because it's not necessarily present all the time because it's so proven. I can fall back on it now, so I have to shake it up to get back in the moment again, uh, which is why I'm writing material again. And uh, I just go up and try and be as funny as I can and without trying, you know, I just kind of trust that it's going to be funny. Sometimes I have to push, but other times I don't. And I want them to laugh really hard, really often. You know, there's, there's a lot of things I want to unpack in that statement. Um, y- yes, I've seen you, I've never seen you bomb and I've seen you do stand up a ton of times. Actually, the first time I saw you do stand up, I it was at the New York Comedy Club. It was at Gino's album release party. Yeah. And you were up and you were just destroying the crowd. Like you were going into the crowd and you were tearing them all apart. And I said to the person standing next to me, I, I am not following this guy. I'm gonna quietly walk out the door. Gino could survive this without me. Yeah. And right then you were going off and Gino's like push me like dude you're on now yeah and i had to follow you and it is the scariest thing because you know you bring the energy level of the crowd up so much because a they're laughing a lot b they're on alert because no one wants to be called on right by you because yeah. you're kind of making fun of everyone so they're on alert in a different in a high energy way and if someone has kind of a slower style or any kind of different style like how, how does one follow you I, I've heard people complain about it, um, but good comics don't have a problem. Well, I'm contrasting myself with yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, no, not not in a bad way, but there, there are, come to think, like lots of pro comics don't want to go up after me, even if I'm hosting or something. And even some of the best comics acknowledge, like, it's a big gear shift. But they, they do it because they know they get stronger by doing it. But there's a lot of people that complain and don't do it those are the comics that don't get stronger. It's funny because that was that was kind of when I was first starting to do a lot. Like I, I was been doing this for not seventeen years, two years, but let's say in the past year, much more frequently, like three to six times a week. But that yeah. was in the the first month or two, and so I was terrified. Now I view it like how you just said. Any situation where I start to feel terror, I switch my mindset and think, okay, this is a great opportunity yeah. to, to a challenge to try to do this. But still, what's, what's in your experience, how, I, and, and some advice I've gotten is, you know, kind of take a moment to reflect with the audience that, hey, the atmosphere is about to change. Sure. I think you always have to acknowledge what's happening um, as a stand-up. And that's what I learned. It's a huge difference in between how I used to look at it, which was it had to be this great polished product that you were trying to sell 
to uh, finding, oh, no, you're going to be more successful if it's consistently a work in progress. Mm. Uh, and, That's and, key. And that encompasses anything and everything. I mean, I used to do showcases, you know, for festivals and TV, and I'd be like, it has to be word for word, beat for beat, and I didn't get anything. And then the year that I start, I mean, I didn't do Just for Last for 16 years. Part of that was political because there was somebody that didn't want me there. But then... After I was like, you know what, I'm not going to do it like this anymore. I'm going to do it the way I want to. And I would talk to the people that were there auditioning people. So I'd be like, hey, how, how's it going with you? Are you getting any dick since you've been taking this job? You're up there in the hierarchy now. So I, I would break down that fourth wall to a degree that it was everything was in the moment. So even if you're feeling that fear, it encapsulates itself into the performance instead of just holding it in and being like, what's the audience thinking while I'm saying these things? Uh, instead of doing that, I voice that. So, and, and I'm very judgmental of my own stand-up. I don't think my stand-up is good stand-up. When I compare it to, you know, a Bill Burr or a Doug Stanhope, people that are really saying something with their stand-up. But I do think my stand-up is good insofar as how funny it is and I, I think how unique it is right well, now. Well, well, and gosh, I wish... I wish we could actually take notes on all the things you just said because I want to keep going back to 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 everything and ask about it. So you just so you I would say out of all the stand-ups I've seen recently, you get more laughs per second than anyone else. Yeah. And in part because I don't it's like just that laugh from the gut too. It's like a really strong laugh that because you're you're just tearing everyone apart so we could kind of we all are seeing what you're seeing, and then yeah. you're saying some kind of like weird hidden truth about them or what could be, and it's just funny. Um, but you compare yourself right just now to Doug Stanhope, Stanhope and Bill Burr, who have very different styles from you. They're like yeah. they're kind of like these angry ranting styles with some punchiness in it. Right. So they're not going for laughter per second. They might not even get laughter per minute. Um, but they're saying interesting things. Yeah. So do you feel, okay, I'm getting all this laughter and that's kind of one of the purposes of stand-up comedy, but there's, you, do you feel like they're saying uh, more kind of topical or, or deeper things? Or what do you, what do you really see? Like, I personally like laughs per yeah. second. Um, I think that it's a grass is always greener type scenario where, you know, I, I've had some people be like, I can't do what you do. Um, so... I, I think when I started out, it was always like I want to be like a Lenny Bruce or a Richard Pryor and be this voice. And now it's the exact opposite of that. You know, it's silly. I know some comics that like I respect that watch me and they're like, it's shit what you're doing. Um, so how does it make you feel when 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 you after you've been doing this 17 years and you've heard someone say that about you? I mean, I always try to not compare and despair, which is this thing where it's like, you know, I don't want to compare myself to these other people, but, you know, to have, you know, your peers uh, not enjoy what you do is a thing. And I've, and I've encountered, I've, I've talked to some of them and I'll be like, do you hate what I do? And some people will be like, no, I'm like just really envious of the fact that you can do it. So there is a thing where I, I walk a fine line where it's like my style of comedy maybe in the 80s, would be hacky. But now, because it's more of a nostalgic form of stand-up comedy, no one else is doing it. So it can't be hacky because no one else is doing uh, I mean, the thing I'm doing. I mean, I don't, I don't see how it's hacky in the sense that you're not doing 
I mean, we're kind of getting into to the weeds of this. I should mention you've you've done stand up all over the place. Yeah, you did this. You were on television. You've got written two books. Yeah, uh, movie credits. Yeah, 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 movie stuff. What name the two books? It's like Mister Manners. Mister Manners: Proper Etiquette for the Modern Degenerate and American Etiquette Failing Upwardly in a Fox News Nation. Yeah, and and. Uh, you know, you've done. I've seen you do stand up a million times at Stand Up New York, but you do clubs all over the city and all over the country. And uh, uh, so, so you're out there. You've been doing this. We'll, we'll get more into your background in a second. But uh, again, I don't see it as hacky in the sense that it's. It seems to the audience like you have this X-ray vision on them, and you're able to pull out the humor and just the slightest nuances in them. And I know. Some of it's a little prepared, some of it's written, but some of it is clearly not prepared. Yeah. Uh, and I th- I feel like that's like a hard and intelligent skill. I don't feel like, like I feel like maybe you're thinking traditional crowd work right. might be a little hacky, like, hey, where are you from? What do yeah. you do? But like, I don't know, you'll pull out, you just pull out the most insane things and yeah. twist it about the people in the audience. Uh, and, and you mentioned earlier, a lot of it is about uh, being present, and I've seen you before a set at Stand Up New York. I see you sit outside, and you're just thinking by yourself. Is that your way of like getting in the moment? Or? I, I'm not thinking about the set. I'm just thinking about shit in my life that you know. Uh, I I don't think about going on stage at all. If I if I'm thinking about it, I know it's not going to go. Like I had to audition. Uh, I had an audition at a club downtown. A few weeks ago, which is like a big thing, and I was like, "Why am I?" So I started thinking about it, and right away, I knew from past experience, I would just shut my brain off, and I'd be like, "Don't think, don't think," because I'd think about the Booker watching, I'd think about what she would say to me, I'd try and project this future, and I'd just shut my brain down. And I'm like, "Don't think." Whenever I thought of her or the audition process, don't think. And then I went on stage and did great, and got in at the club. Um, I still haven't gotten any spots there, by the way, which is breaking my heart. But so uh, that that was just a great lesson to not think. Like to, the the whole thing about being present in the moment is having that moment, and not uh, predicting what's going to happen. So just going up as a blank slate in an ideal world. When I'm taking the most risks, what I do on stage is I'll have a thought. So this thought that I have now is like I had sex with my wife yesterday. And it was amazing because I didn't have to wait for her to come, which never happens. And usually I have to wait for her to come, and it's this whole thing. And then I was like, and then, so that's the thought that I would go on stage with tonight. And I would start with that. And then wherever the conversation would go, the conversation would, inevitably I'd end up talking to people about their sex, does she come, you know, stuff like that. But to just have, <clears throat> just have a thought in my head at the very most. Otherwise, just go up blind. But but there, but there is this. It's not like everybody who kind of is a blank slate and is present is able to then do what you do. Right. Like so, there's a some skill set that developed over time, which is not only can you point out things about a couple's sex life, but you know how to like twist it to make it funny. And where's what's that? Because I even saw right before this podcast, like almost everything we can say, you could twist it in some unusual way, and yeah. it's funny. Yeah. So, uh, that came from just years of talking on stage, years of talking. And you know, you used to do, I would say, a, a more traditional stand-up. Like yeah, I, when I, I see you on Access act. TV clips and like Gotham Comedy yeah. Club, you had a written act. 
And I still see you do elements of that written act, like yeah. you fall back on it. That's like the spine. That let's wasn't say. those Gotham's were those that those were where I kind of learned to trust myself. Where mm. I was like, just go up and do what you would do in a club. So I I don't talk to them as much on those tape sets, but it was like you know inferences of crowd work and quick bangers and a few in the moment things. But you know stuff that I'd done before that I thought would hit. As best it could, but you know, there's 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 stuff that's that's funny, and then there's stuff that I feel are tactics to kind of get the crowd on your side. That's and that also could be funny. But like for instance, I've seen you do this a couple of times, and, and maybe maybe this is true, maybe it's not. But you feel one side of the audience is laughing more yeah. than the other side, and and you'll point it out. You guys are laughing more than you guys. I've got to win you guys back. We got Fox News over here. We got MSNBC <laughs> over here. Yeah, like. So you, I've seen you do that several times. It's prepared, but it feels in the moment, and uh, it's it's funny, but it's also a way somehow of like bringing the tribe back together. Yeah, I don't know how that does that, mm-hmm. and I don't know how. I still don't know. How, by the way, <laughs> do you left side, right side? I've seen yeah. a couple people do that. Um, I don't know. I don't know how it works. Maybe through division, we caused unity, which is a great political lesson for this presidency. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm unaware of the parlor tricks or whatever I do now because I, I, I don't know what those things are. I'm just My only concern is keep them laughing. That's all I care about. So I'm consistently scrambling, which is what makes me quick, is because I know I have to keep getting laughs. Do you get scared if they stop laughing? No. I Now I embrace that. And what do you do? But doing? I don't like bombing. I really hate bomb I, I i mean i think that's why i've never seen you bomb in like I've let's bombed, say 20 times but what, yeah. what, what when was the last time you bombed and what does it I look like for once you? uh where was it i mean the night before my seller audition i i had uh a set at danger fields where i ran the set that i was going to do at the cellar and that set bomb but then i got out of it with other stuff i had a bomb i don't know I don't remember the last one, but it, I know it was in the past few months. And let's say you're bombing. You say you got out of it. How did you get out of it? Well, I did the set that I was going to do, and I said, oh, that's set I'm auditioning at another club with, and uh, that went horribly, so we'll see. Uh, all right. And then I went right into crowd work instead, of, and that pulled me out of it. You know, it was a 20-minute set. The first six minutes bombed, and the rest did well. So, so with the crowd work, I kind of feel like you have a set, let, let's call it, you have 50 tools in your tool chest. So you know you could kind of rely on these tools. You could find the right archetypes in the yeah. crowd and pull out some of these tools. And then in between that, something might take hold where you see someone who's not part of your tool chest, but something strikes you as funny in the moment and you're able to pull that out. And yeah. sometimes that's the funniest. Um yeah, that's what happens when I get bored. E- even if I'm doing great with that, things I've said before, I'll see something that strikes me out of the ordinary, and that's usually where the gold. Like the other night, I saw a guy that was so black, like so dark black, and I go, "You are so black!" And then it just came from there that he was from Africa and this place called Togo. So we just went off on this thing. And you know, what, what, up, what's going on? Like, so so far that the no premise, one was offended by the, the way, right, and, and I said, and, "You are so black," because it's an honest thing that just came out of me. It's not filtered through racism or hatred. It's just like, 
wow, this guy's skin is so black. And, and it's a funny thing to say that to another person. No, people yeah. don't really like go up you to other so people. Black? No, like, it's not like you? a business meeting yeah. when you would say that to no, somebody. Those are fighting words on so, the street. Right. You can't say that to your UPS guy. Right. So, so, but let's say that's like a funny premise. And then what's the punch? Like, how do you then, once you start well, the dialogue. people laugh on the premise sometimes. The right, premise is, is you are so black. And it's yeah. like, you are so black. And that gets, because there's uncomfortable. The the thing that people say now where the like comedy's being ruined because of political correctness, it may be for some people, but it's not for me because I push so much over the line. So when I go, you're so black, it gets that he didn't just say that. Then it gets... They look at him and they're like, it's true. That guy is so black. And then there's also that shock factor. There's still that, like, they want to groan, but they want to let. And it turns into this cacophony of, you know, wondrous, jazzy noise that comes from the audience because stand up is really a conversation, it's a dialogue. But instead of them talking, they have the ability to groan or laugh or sigh or heckle or mo whatever it is. And it turns into this brilliant gumbo of all these emotions coming from the audience, not just joy, not just laughter. And there's all these different kinds of laughs. There's You could tell those laughs when people have been holding it in, they've been going through something painful, and it spills out, like almost, ooh, they almost vomited out, and they're shocked to do it. So there's all these varying levels of laughter. So when you see this thing that's in the moment where I had no idea I was going to say, you're so black, I just saw this guy that was so black. And then my mind will be like, oh, he's almost purple. And then you're like, yeah, you can't do that. Richard Pryor did this. So this is how fast my brain is working when I'm doing this. And then I'll be like, you must have like a super black name. And then he said his name and he goes, Andrew. And I'm like, Andrew? And he goes, no, Ezra. And I was like, now that's a super black name. And then we went from his name to where he was from. So the standard little things like, what's your name? Where are you from? But they're so enriched by the people in the audience. They're enriched by the people in the audience and they're enriched by your sideways take on the where are you from. You got to the where, so so let's say most comedians are like, where are you from? And you 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 got to the where are you from through this kind of shocking way. Yeah. And do you think it's, do you think kind of, um, I mean, comedy seems like this, there's always a moving definition of what, of what it is and what's good comedy. But like, do you always want to say the thing that's a little bit over the edge that everyone would be thinking, but no one is saying, and you're trying to say that as fast as possible to as many people as possible in the audience? Yeah, but it may also be a trained response in me now because I know, you know, so I, I think it takes more and more for me to shock myself or for me to shock them. So you have to shock yourself? I don't even know if I consciously try to do it. I just try to be... And and try is a horrible word, but I, I'm just being honest. But I know I fall short on it so many times. I know in my life I fall short on it. I know on stage I fall short on it. I'm not honest enough. So it's it's constantly a work in progress for me to be as honest as possible. Well, what does that mean? Like where where in life and where on stage? Like if I'm having a miserable time with my wife and we're fighting and it's like, that's what I want to go on stage with. But then sometimes I go on stage and I just want to escape. You know, I want to escape the same way the audience wants to escape. Um, so in that regard, I'm not the best comic that I could be. You know, I, I feel like I need to dig deeper and I need to be more honest. Well, um, well, well like you say with, um, 
you know, like a Doug Stanhope or a Bill Burr, they're going to bring up kind of societal issues and and speak about the ludicrousness of of those issues and kind of find with the audience, I feel together with the audience, they're going to find the punch, the punchiness in right. that, in the ridiculousness of some situation. You don't do that, but because you're so focused on the laughs per second and and the and and the the which is incredible that the speed by which you could joke around Let's with also everybody. Also, call it laughs per minute because if they were per second, I would be absolutely hilarious. <laughs> well, I would say though. Let's say they say the and I don't know if this is I don't believe in this rule, but like it's a cliche that a comedian should get a laugh every fifteen seconds. Right. I would say you're like every five seconds. Yeah, I try. I try to make. I try to make punches as quick as possible and wherever I can. So if I'm setting something up, I try to make a punch in the set. I try to punch. So, so, so like take the example of like, okay, if you go up on stage tonight, you're going to talk about um, sex with your wife last night. And instead of kind of like going into the audience and, oh, when did you have sex with you? I don't know what you would do, but what about kind of thinking out loud, you know, why this is an unusual situation? Why do married men yeah. have an unusual situation when it comes to like you know they think about sex with their wives in a different way than unmarried men? Now you have a topic you could play around. Is that maybe a deeper way of going? Yeah, into that's it? the goal. Is exactly what you described: is to go up and be able to just think out loud. Um, but also, you know, I'm not diagnosed with it, but I <laughs> my brain jumps around a lot, so I could start with that. And if there's not a laugh coming, I shift because I'm so used to I'm so used to that laugh. But you it, do you get anxiety when you don't get that laugh? <sighs> yeah, but my but my instincts are like okay, just do something funny. Uh, so the, it's the brain works so quickly that it'll be like okay, they're not laughing. Uh, are you not funny? No, you're funny. Okay, do something funny. And but then that's you could, the and then worst process. cases you could fall back on. Your tool chest. So yeah. you could say, you're not laughing, you are, yeah. Fox News over here, MSNBC yeah. over here. But it becomes that those are tricks then. So it's I, I find the best way, I mean, the best stand-up I've done in the past was I would write something scripted, I would memorize it, I would work it on stage, which is the process every stand-up comic goes through. Uh, but I've found a loophole now where I do the exact opposite, and I go, I'm not going to write, I'm not going to rehearse, I'm not going to memorize Instead, I'm going to go with nothing and see what happens. Right, so but if, if someone took that direct advice, they would immediately go up and bomb. <laughs> so really? you have you have like a there there there's you know there's always a problem. Let's say for someone who's beginning any field of of that they want to any difficult skill that they want to learn to be to be better at. People always say, "Oh, study the best, learn from the best." The problem with that a little bit, which is a nuance of learning is if I just take that advice that you just said, if I tried to do it, yeah. it would be horrible <laughs> yeah. because there's the 17 years of learning how to take you know, something unusual and making it funny in the moment. That yeah. was a hard skill to learn. So, so uh, you have to kind of go to the people not with the 17 years, but maybe with the eight years because they're still learning that skill. And so what was... I don't know what was what was the what are the sub skills? What were the difficulties when you were basically trying to learn how to take something in the moment and turn it into something funny? Because now you can do it. It's like an instinct. The ability—I was too mean for a long time, so I had to find a way to caress that meanness. 
Um, and you're I, you're still too mean. I, <laughs> really? I mean, but people laugh now. Right, I remember right. I used to be mean. You're where not that mean. That I you wouldn't don't, be able to be like, uh, it, when I'm really killing, I could look at a table of guys and be like, oh, look at these faggots. And they won't be gay, but it's like when I'm really killing this word that's such a hateful word doesn't have that meaning anymore. And it's just people immediately get the irony of calling, you know, three jocked up frat guys faggots and that hits right away but if i'm being too mean i'll be like look at these faggots and you hear people like oh what ah so inflection is a little bit yeah and the and who and the the discrepancy between what you're saying and what they look like yeah. that you know they they're part of the joke yeah um it, it it used to be too mean and i used to be too angry and i feel like on stage and off stage are so related. So once I got happier in my life that came on stage, um, there was no real anger. I can still get angry. I had a show at Dangerfields on Saturday. Paul Verzi was on. He called me. He goes, I just walked out of Dangerfields. He's a very funny comic. And he goes, these people are unruly. There was no bouncers. One guy came up, tried to take the microphone. Another guy laid on the piano. These people are fucking animals. And I go, oh, great. He goes, where are you? I go, I'm on my way over there to go on right now. So I see him outside. He's like, it's awful. He's like, you might be okay. I went up. It was fine. It was a fight, but I have that skill where I can overcome 250 rowdy people because I was like, this guy's a faggot. Look at you and your Muslim friend. He's going to get dacked the fuck out of here in a day. And they're eating it up. Because it was so mean, and that's what they were. They were just a bunch of Penn State assholes yelling at comics. But when they saw somebody that alphaed them, they had no choice but to kind of bow down and respect the skill because I, I was di One guy was trying to be the witty guy, and I said, hey, you guys ever seen the stepmother f porn? He goes, I'd like to fuck your stepmother. And I just said, I will rape you in front of all of your friends. I'm going to make them watch while I prolapse your anus. The guy shut up right after that. Well, also, so, you, I should mention, yeah. you're a, a jacked kind of, you do lift weights every day? Yeah, I lift weights five days a week. But I'm also three foot eight. That's <laughs> not true. Um, you think, you know, what you just said reminds me of kind of the famous clip of Bill Burr in Philadelphia yeah. where he's bombing. And then just for 12 minutes, he to he decides to just screw his show and he's just completely rant, saying the worst things against the audience and yeah. completely ranting against them. And by the time he's done, they've completely turned around. They're laughing at everything he says because he's yeah. just trashing them so much. So kind of is is asserting alphaness uh, sort of this way of really demonstrating that you don't care at all what they think? Yeah, that's... You, you don't get good until you really don't care. There was a really good comic in Canada named Mike Wilmot and really good and travels the world really funny and I and I used to work with him it was this ego thing where I was like I'm at least as funny and he'd been doing it 30 years and so funny and I kept trying to push and he'd go you know you, there's something there but he's like you, you still care and that makes you not funny it's like when you stop caring and then I saw him last month and he goes I was right huh and I go, yeah. He goes, eh, you got it now. So it, it was. Uh, it's so interesting because not caring is kind of the key to, let's say, any art form and much of business. If you're going to say something that's different and unusual to either the not, and I'm not just talking about the comedy crowd, but let's say different and unusual to the universe, 
you're going to be largely, uh, you're taking the risk of being hated until yeah. people accept your ideas and then you're loved. So if yeah. someone says some innovative thing like, oh, in 1990, the internet's going to be really big. At first, you're going to be hated and then you're going to create some big internet business and it's gonna, you're going to be loved. Yeah. So I think that's kind of the key to success for anything. You still have to care enough that you're going to get that reaction. Like you say, you want the laughs every five seconds. Yeah. But somehow, what does it mean then to not care but still want a reaction? I think you stop caring about the results and you care more about the process. I think caring about the process is what's important. Caring about the results is not a good thing. And I also think this notion of, you know, everybody loving you, like when I get like really positive tweets, like you're hilarious, I still also, I don't give them too much weight because I know I still get those. You're a piece of shit. You're not funny. So I still get those. So I can't accept either one of those, um, you know, and, and just keep, you just keep going. I think that's it. I'm reading the subtle art of not giving a fuck. It's making me really angry, but, uh, I know Mark, Mark Manson has been on the podcast. I know very well. Yeah. Yeah. Books making me angry because it's so counterintuitive and it's saying you have to (laughs) embrace all this pain and struggle. And I'm like, this is, and since I've started reading it, it's been nothing but pain and struggle. And I'm waiting for all the good stuff to come out of the pain and struggle. Um, but uh, it hasn't yet. So, 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 how did you? Um, I don't know. Why did you start doing stand up? Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's gonna be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? 
answer to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm thirty five. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hims.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hims. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I just want to say thank you to everyone listening to this. I hope you enjoy what I've been doing. I don't ask for a lot, but please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast. And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. To see the show notes, 
just head on over to jamesaltucher.com slash podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast. Once again, thanks so much for joining me on the journey of this podcast. So, so how did you, um, I don't know, why did you start doing stand-up? I mean, obviously you, you had a sense of humor from the beginning. I was funny as a kid, but I mean, I always wanted to be a movie star. And uh, so I, I started acting in my early 20s, and then I got like little bit parts here and there, and I was like, oh, this isn't, it just creatively, there wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Like you can run a monologue every day or you can go to classes, but... I wanted to be, I think I wanted it for the wrong reasons. I wanted to be rich and famous. And then uh, stand-up was this thing that you could create every day, and you were fully in charge of it. So even now when I feel like shit, if I sit down and write for 20 minutes, I feel better. Um, and I don't write enough, you know? So What's the writing process like for you? I don't. I don't like. I don't like to write because it's so. It's like eating vegetables. But like, would you do you start with a premise like what you said about? Right now, I'll have yeah a premise, and then I'll go on stage with it and kick it around, and that I don't know. Somehow it becomes something. It's a very organic process. But as I said, like when I'm trying to evolve, I'll sit down and write like longer chunks. Like yesterday, writing this bit about here's what being on testosterone replacement therapy is. Have you been on testosterone replacement therapy? Yeah, it's great. All right, so let me ask you this, two things. One is I, I met some other guy uh, who was doing it, and because the the body is getting the testosterone from an external source, it forgets that it needs to also make testosterone, and yeah. so the guy started growing breasts because <laughs> his body forgot he was his body forgot he was a man. <laughs> yeah, he's doing too much. And he has to also get all of his levels checked. And they, they have other drugs that they can give you to make sure that that doesn't happen. But that's a horrible thing. That's a nightmare. Why, why'd you decide to do... Like, I sort of feel like... My levels were really low. I had no But like no everybody in America's drive. level... Sure. Well, everybody should be on testosterone replacement therapy. It's great. And what do you do? You get an injection? Or? Yeah, I have to inject it. My wife does it now. She needs testosterone? No, she injects it into my ass. So it's great. There's no pills or anything? You can... Uh, this. You can do a gel on your shoulders, which is what I started doing. You rub it on your chest or your shoulders. But then uh, if your wife is pregnant or you have a kid, you can't have the gel around because it'll rub off on them. And then next thing you know, my daughter's got a dick, and then it's not a good thing. The other option is they can put these uh, pellets under your skin. But I've heard they, they're horrible. Then the third option is they give you injectable testosterone. And uh, what about pills, though? I see in GNC, take male booster. Yeah, but that's not prescription stuff. This is what I'm doing is real test, baby. This is, this is what bodybuilders use. It's great. And and better sleep, better sex drive, less chance of prostate issues. Really? Uh, basically rules out diabetes. If 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 you're at risk for those things, having low T. But I did steroids in my 20s, so that's why I have low T. Because I used to do, you know, there was a two and a half year chunk where I was a competitive bodybuilder that I was injecting a whole bunch of stuff in my body and that naturally drops your real testosterone. Because of what I said earlier, because that your body forgets that Yeah, it's... you're getting it. My, my balls are tiny. My wife looks <laughs> at my balls and she's like, look at your balls, laughs at them. They look like baby M&Ms in a skin purse. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, 
So aren't you worried now that you're on testosterone therapy, the same thing's going to happen that, that when you took steroids, that now you're on it for life? Now you're on it for life. This is it. Yeah, you get like, is my, technology my levels gonna get better? are good. I, I mean, at some point, once I'm old enough and I don't need to fuck anymore, and I don't care about how I look, I'll be like, yeah, that's enough. I'm 60. I don't need to be jacked anymore. But I may, you know, I may do it till the day I die. That old bodybuilding adage, bring me a bigger coffin, bro. Um, I, you know, I haven't had a checkup since I was about 18. Why? And you don't believe in doctors. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Or it's not that I don't believe in them. There might be a fear factor there as well and also a lazy factor. But And I've been healthy, but people keep telling me I'm 50 now. There's like all these things you have to check, one of them being testosterone Prostate. levels. Prostate. You yeah, you supposedly you got to check that, but yeah. I don't care. I don't know. Yeah, you should. You probably it, should. And, uh, uh, but, you know, sometimes I get tired a little earlier than I think I should. And maybe that's related to testosterone. Could be. I think you'd be hilarious if you if you got a dosage and then you doubled your dosage and just got all jacked but kept your afro. I think it'd be the funniest look ever. You just walk around like this big bully Jew. And you get, where's, where's my guilt? Bring me my guilt. Nice dreidel. Yeah. So, so okay, so you, you so this is a uh, you were writing about this. What's what do you follow? You know, how do you then kind of twist this into jokes? I I mean, these seem like these seem like uh, scripted pieces that I would need to do, and then you have to get comfortable enough where it's like you're riffing with the audience. But now I've almost pigeonholed myself as that riff with the audience guy because it's like I've had some good showcases for the Tonight Show. I'm trying to get on. And uh, so I'll send a tape to Michael and he'll look at it and be like, ah, this isn't you. He's like, you you know, you go up and ask people who's fucking and who's doing but this. But they don't do all And I'm like, work. I can't do that yeah. on The Tonight Show. He's like, oh, yeah, good point. So it's like, you know, maybe I'm not right for The Tonight Show. So I'm, t I'm trying to fight to do crowd work on Jimmy Kimmel because uh, Kimmel was a huge Rickles fan. And uh, I know the book of theirs, so I'm trying to get on Jimmy Kimmel and see if I could do crowd work. It's a risk for them. You know, they want to they want to have everything approved, but you know, I want to fight and just say, look, if it doesn't go well, just don't air it. Well, so so I want to get back to that in a second. It's probably a couple things I wanted to get back to that I've forgotten about already. But you started out year one. How do you how do, how does any when anybody starts anything, let's say someone wants to be a great golf player or or violinist or comedian or actor, year one, everybody's gonna suck. Yeah. But they have to survive that period. You don't it, think you're sucking while you suck. You're trying to do the best possible thing that you can do. Yeah, you think that, and and so so Paul Reiser described this on the podcast. It's almost like people in their first year are in a in a womb. They don't realize that it's so easy for them to just die, but yeah. the womb protects them somehow. Sure. Uh, my first year, I think. And it takes years to shake this off. It's like you want to do stuff that you think is going to stand out. You want to do stuff that's going to get you, quote, unquote, discovered. You want to do stuff that's original, even though you're not capable of thinking originally because you have so many influences going into your head at the same time. So for me, it was like, okay, I got to get discovered because I wanted to use it to get into movies or whatever. So my first five minutes, there was like song parodies in it. There was, I would do, and I don't sing, but I'd be like, hey, this George Michael, he's in the news again, huh? Maybe he should change his song to I'm whacking off before I go-go. Don't leave me hanging in the bathhouse, yo-yo. And it would get laughs. And I was like, oh, this is easy. But it was such stupid comedy. Um, 
But now, I'm, I mean, I, I literally still do shades of that, where I'll do, like, I'll be on stage and do a song and change the words, and people will be like, ah, ha, ha. So it's... So, uh, so, yeah, so, okay, you were getting the laughs, uh, and whether or not... It, you're, you're, it's your judgment that it was stupid comedy, but like you say, you're aiming for la a lot of laughs. Yeah. What was wrong? I, I what made it stupid? Back then it wasn't consistent, and it was also like that style of comedy, but I feel like people are less judgmental about style now because you get through a certain point where, you know, it's hack to say hack. Um, it's derivative to say derivative. So you you just do what you do, and as long as you're... As long as you're being you and you're doing your job, I think that's that's what matters. But I mean, but again though, being you is a weird. Uh, you know, let's say um, someone's giving me advice about being a golf player, just swing the way you would normally swing. Mm -hmm. That's not going to be good advice unless I spend years right. figuring out the right swing. Like so, comedy, the right swing is just like you were saying when you were calling the jocks. You know whatever it's inflection of voice it's like who you picked out specifically there's yeah. all these like sub skills that you kind of had to learn so that the final thing would hit it's it was your process rather than the outcome right it's your process on the stage in the moment yeah and that's that's what makes it exciting for me considering how often i do you know i do 20 to 25 a week so 20 to 25 a week yeah so doing my top and, and been I, six a week and i did 25 in a night Twenty five in a night. Yeah, documentary that'll be uh, I, the edits done on Saturday. Was so, that is that gonna is that your documentary is it gonna air anywhere? Yeah, well, once we sell it, we're gonna try and sell it. So huh. it looks good. Um, yeah, I did twenty five in a night. So when I do that many, you know, twenty to twenty five in a week, it's about you know how do I make it exciting for me? How do I? And I still. I still don't feel pressure, but I know I have to deliver. You know, where it's like Saturday night and people paid money to come out. I know I have to I have to hit hard. And when it's like, you know, when I'm booked to be the last guy on the show or I'm booked to host. Um, Which, by the way, you're often the la last person or the headliner in yeah. stand-up New York where we're doing this podcast. Yeah. Um, I feel like, you know, you, you, you want to bring it home. So you want to be... I, I'm not thinking about it when I go on stage, but when I'm up there, you know, I, w I want them to laugh as much as they can laugh. So, so, so okay, <clears throat> so so the sub-skills of that, though... I remember when I bombed. <laughs> All right, tell me. Yes, it was at Gotham Comedy Club, and it was about three months ago, and I was trying to get a half-hour tape to do a, a dirty Netflix half-hour special, and I was running the set on stage, and it was so mechanical, and it was just really... Bad, really bad. And I remember the booker being there, and I, I'm very friendly with the booker. And I came off stage, and he was gone. I was like, "Oh, that's it. I'm not working this club anymore." So but even it, after even after but, 16 years at that yeah. point, and you've worked that club a billion times, you've been yeah. on TV for that club, sure. And yeah, one bombing, and you think your career is over? Not career over, but well, your, well, your career with Gotham is over. Yeah, and then sure enough, you know, next time I went back, I killed, and everything went great, and you know, I'm working there. But uh, it was that, it was half an hour, and I remember getting paid and people walking by going, oh, that last guy was just fucking awful. Well, so what was wrong? What was, what was mechanical Too about Too mechanical. It? I was trying to run this set. What does it mean, run this set? I was trying to get a tape mm -hmm. of this half-hour set, and it, it wasn't that busy. So instead of doing the tape, I should have been like, yeah, hey, I'll just talk to them and fucked around. But I was so locked in 
to this deadline where I had to get the tape, and it just wasn't going well. And I should have bailed on it, but I didn't. I was like, stay up here, try and get the tape. Maybe you can salvage it, but it didn't work. I'm still trying to understand what went what went wrong. Like, what was what was failing? It was I wasn't in the moment. I was just saying words. Like what? Uh, hey, I'm. A, I was doing all my material, all my jokes, but it wasn't genuine. It was it was for a result, which was to get the tape. It wasn't the process. So so let me ask you about this. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask advice based on my own limited experience. So I had a set of jokes or or a whole thing that was doing well for a couple months and it was the same set over and over again was doing really well and then suddenly i feel like and this just happened like last week a couple times in a row i felt like i was trying to replay the times it was killing yeah and it just wasn't working even though i knew everything was funny yeah because i had made people laugh many times before and now i feel like I actually have no material because I've lost interest completely in that material. Right. Yeah, that happens. It's gone. It's gone. You could maybe bring it back. You, you, it's still there. That's what people tell me that maybe like a year from now, yeah, but you could bring it for back. Now it's not, it's not working. I had this joke that was the best joke I wrote and it worked for like four years and now it just doesn't work. Like, what was the joke? Um, if you're not originally from. America, let me tell you what Americans are the best at in the whole world. Americans are the best in the whole wide world at getting killed at all-inclusive Mexican resorts. And then it's this whole long act out of me going to... It's such a long joke. It's two and a half minutes long. But anyways... But, 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 okay, that's an example where you can get uh, deeper into the ugly American, particularly in today's kind of global political environment. Mm -hmm. And But you'd have to risk not getting the laugh every five seconds. Mm Mm-hmm. It was, uh, yeah, it was less laughs, but it was a, a brilliant joke and would always inevitably end with a huge laugh and an applause break. And then I was doing it more and more, and I'm like, oh, that applause break's leaving. Oh, these laughs are leaving. I was like, this joke just doesn't work anymore because yeah. it's not in the news anymore. But that's Nobody what happened. Nobody like, Americans getting killed in Mexico anymore. I mean, I had, I had stuff that was totally, I feel, totally destroying, but then I noticed it was like a, it was like a tail-off. Yeah. Like suddenly... A, a, something that would be a middle punchline in a bigger joke would not get the laugh. And only the punchline would get the laugh. Yeah. And then the the punchline would still get a laugh. It would be like a chuckle rather than like a belly laugh or whatever. Like it just starts to slip. And you don't know how to like save it. And then anxiety comes up. Yeah. The, the material's there for when you have nothing else to say. Like in a perfect mm. stand-up world, you would be able to go on stage every night and do... 20 minutes on your day on what happened and then the material. And how do you make that funny? That's I feel that's the skill that you we're learn, skipping over somehow. You learn how to get funny by talking, by being around funny people, by uh, busting balls, by roasting people. You just learn the economy of words and you learn how to think funny. And once you learn how to think funny, you learn how to talk funny. Okay, so so can so so you you listed a bunch of different skills, but can can we identify I feel like like the key to learning anything is to kind of take any difficult skill and find as many sub skills as possible to that are separately that one could learn. Right. So what would be some of the sub skills there? Be present, trust yourself, uh, be aware, be fearless. The, the best sets I do are when I'm not worried if they're going to be offended. You so, know? so so in those moments though, do you try to think of the thing? 
that's shocking to you that will probably be shocking to them? I just say the first thing that jumps into my mind, which is usually the funniest thing. Right, because you've built up that skill. So yeah. what's that, what, that's 17 years of the, the, the thing in your head is probably the funniest thing uh, because that's 17 years of building up. Yeah. I want to hack those 17 years. Okay. First, you have to, you have to come up with five funny minutes. Then you have to do that same five funny minutes about a hundred times, like what you're doing. And then it's going to bomb sometimes, and then you have to do it. And then you're going to go, okay, it's time to write new stuff. You write new stuff. Uh, that's going to bomb. Then you'll start to get it better. You'll start to figure out how to do it. Then you'll be able to start to, on stage, be able to riff and be able to say stuff that's not part of your scripted five minutes. Then from there, you can learn how to talk to the audience. Usually hosting is a good thing to do, but I see a lot of hosts that just do material. Uh, it's not; It doesn't make them good hosts. They're just trying to get more stage time instead of, I'm really, of that. really doing I, what... I got, I got to be a better host because I yeah. do view it as like a chance to do six sets yeah, in a night. it's not. A host melds the show, puts the whole show... You know, the host can be the best guy on the show sometimes, and some people say, well, that's not a good thing if he was. That's not necessarily true. I've hosted a lot. And if and if you're the best guy on the show, it just means the other guys aren't stepping up. Or they're working on new shit so they don't care about being the best. So it's possible for the host to be the best guy on the show. Um, when you host, you learn how to talk. And you have to do open mics. You have to go out. I'm guilty of not doing it enough. I should still do it. So you should still, you should I still should do open still mics. I should still go to little shitholes and just go on stage and talk. And just going on stage and talk and being okay with the silence is also another thing. Being okay with silence builds up that armor on you so that when something doesn't get a laugh, you're not scrambling, but you're like, all right, well, you know, we'll get a laugh with the next thing that I'm going to say because it's going to be whatever it is. Um, even though I have that reflex where it's like, I need these laughs, I need these laughs, I'm still okay with silence. I, I almost embrace it because it means they're thinking and we're changing gears and I can take them to another level now. And then you have to repeat all that stuff. You have to polish up material. You have to constantly write. It doesn't stop. It never stops. I'm, like, I've been in New York for seven years and I was like, I just want to, if I can get past to the comedy cellar, it'd be the best thing. And then I got past to the comedy cellar and I told my wife, I'm like, I don't even care if I work there. I'm just happy I got passed. I'm, I'm miserable. In, you got I'm miserable there. not working there. I'm like, I need work. Why? Why are they not working me? So it's like a big thing. Yeah. Well, I've been in New York for seven years, but it took me that long to get an audition. Huh. Yeah. Um, I wasn't that aggressive about it. I was kind of like, I'll, I'll build up so that when I get that audition, it's a no-brainer. Were you able to audition in front of an audience? Because it feels like you right now, in particular, most a lot. Oh of yeah, York they audience. put you in like on a Friday night when it's okay. packed. Yeah, and then getting passed, as they say, is you. The Booker was watching, and she yeah. said, "Okay, you're good." Yeah. So, so uh, one thing you said was really interesting, which I find to be true. I always find there's the written jokes, like you said, but the riffs always are the funniest because they're like you, like you also said. They're the ones happening in the moment where you notice something funny, and that also is it's funny to you, so it's funny to the crowd. Yeah. And the jokes are kind of like the spine, but the riffs fill out the rest of the body. The riffs and the crowd work, at least for a club set, yeah. fill out the rest of the body. Um, you know, which again, that's not 
doing it. That's different from doing an hour. It's different from doing like a TV right. show, like like a, a Tonight Show. But for a club, it feels like the the, the riffs could be the funniest part. Yeah, the I, I mean, I feel like that's why I'm successful as a club comic because there's you know aspects of jazz and aspects of burlesque and um, it, it's a nightclub act that I have, which is why it works in comedy clubs. And do you feel it it caps you in other ways if you get too good at this? Not too good, but is the wrong word. But if you get locked into this one, yeah, lane, I'm going through it right now, which is why I'm trying to evolve to you know get more television savvy. Um, that being said, I mean you can make a good living being a club comic. There's no you know. Um, yeah, like I feel like what if like I don't know if you've done this, but what if you were to do a college tour? I feel like you would be huge. Yeah, I don't think that they would let me. <laughs> Oh, because of politically offensive. Yeah, political court. I mean, I won the College Comedian of the Year in 2007 in Canada, but this was when you were allowed to be as dirty as you wanted to be. And it was like, you know, the other acts that were working a lot were like X-rated comedians and stuff. Um, now it's, I think, unheard of uh, for a comic to be able to go to a college and say what they want to say. What about like Las Vegas? Sure, I'd do Vegas. I mean, the the dream would be uh, do a residency in Vegas when I'm old and golf every day, and then uh, just collapse down there. Is that a goal? Like well, now you're 45, been doing this 17 years. Yeah. Do you feel anxious? Like, okay, this is sort of. I don't feel anxious. I feel like it's it's all it's all gonna work out. That's what Louis said right before he, he <laughs> fell off the map. But it's, it's all gonna work out. What are all these claims? Um, it's it's all going to work out but yeah i mean i'd like to hit that level where you could you know play vegas every night you know like a like a rickles type thing i think and so 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 really in back like your your first year you survived you got you got some laughs you got enough laughs to say okay i'm in, you probably felt some sense of improvement throughout the year second year third year when did you start to realize okay now i'm starting to slip into oh, no, a career oh shit for like <sighs> until six and then I had an act after six and I was making a bit of money I think I quit my day job after six years what do you mean you had an act like because clearly you had an act in years one through five no I was building it was all experimentation to see how far I could go and what would work then I had something that worked most of the time uh, what, what was the difference between a non-act and an act when you suddenly felt like okay this act is professional it was scripted. I'd done it as a one-man show, and then I cannibalized the one-man show to make it stand-up. Um, and that was, you know, it was working most of the time. Not all the time. I'd go to, like, small towns, and they would just be like, what the hell is this? Like, really offended. They, they, they wouldn't like it. Whereas now, it's, you know, you, you learn more gears as you go. You learn... I still hear people talk about, like, oh, my Trump jokes didn't work in South Dakota. It's like, eh. Okay, well, what did you think was going to happen when you're thinking about it that much? You just, it, if they're jokes, they work, they don't work. But if they're, you know, thoughts and feelings and opinions, if I tell you a joke about Trump and I can see on your face you disagree with it, I'm not going to be like, oh, that joke didn't work. I'm going to be like, why do you disagree with it? You know, open up the conversation and with then the find more funny in it. Yeah, some so, people are just like live and die on the jokes. But but here, but I, I agree with you. I think when it's like pure... Uh, joke oriented. I feel like I'm watching a comedian who's trying to prepare for his five minutes on Colbert, as yeah. opposed to 
really playing for the audience and trying to make a great experience right then. But uh, what you just mentioned was interesting though. You see it on their face that they didn't like it. And then you respond directly to that. Like that's a skill too. I think, I think. Well, that's being in the moment. If, if you and I are having a conversation, I go, Hey, James, uh, your dick is small and your girlfriend's <laughs> ugly. Like you uh, smiled, so I'd be like, oh, I, gee, I Jesus, James is true. comfortable. <laughs> I know, they're both not true. But if you responded negative, I'd shift my gears and be like, look, I'm joking. I don't really mean that. You have a huge dick, and I met your girlfriend. She's lovely. So we would carry on this conversation. But it's that that's, uh, I'm very fortunate I learned that in Canada. Uh, Canadian <laughs> comics really learn how to listen because they also kind of need that approval. Um, Good comics have that. Good comics listen to the other side. I watch a lot. There's a lot of com comics that do well. They're really writers. They're not stand-ups. There's no essence of performance to what they do. Um, you know, th there are there's room for guys that just stand behind a mic and say jokes, but the best stand-up comics, with the exception of like a Stephen Wright, I think of somebody like a Gary Veter, who's just like a pure writer and just stands there and deadpans his jokes, but he also works as a stand-up because it's good enough that he can do that. But there's some guys that you just watch and you're like, they have not an ounce of charisma, not an ounce of likability, and their jokes are okay. You know, Bill Maher would buy their jokes, which is like, so... So I feel, I feel like, do you, what's the relationship between likability and humor slash laughs there's you'll laugh more at somebody that you like than somebody that you hate i think that's your vibrator uh, you left <laughs> jerry it on stevenson. the table i don't know who that is good old jerry stevenson good guy used to uh was running back for the san francisco giants is that really true no <laughs> san francisco giants is not uh their baseball team so uh, where were we going with this before your phone interrupted? So, so, so you see, you've seen guys who are like, um, they tell jokes. Yeah, likability is important. It, it, some people are too likable, where they smile through the whole act, which is a trick. Where they laugh at their own jokes, which is a trick. I feel, I feel like Dave Chappelle does that. So Dave Chappelle is great at. Dave Chappelle's a master. He's, he's a master, yeah. but I feel he and let's just say he's the best, whatever. But I feel like he often he signals to, to the audience when they should laugh. Like he'll hit his knee with yeah. the microphone. He'll start laughing, and that signals to the audience you should be laughing too. Or it could just be because he's high and he's really enjoying it. Uh -huh. You know, it's. I've only done one show with him. I brought him on stage at Gotham, or I brought Jerry Seinfeld on stage, and then Jerry brought him on stage, and then I went up after Dave and did five minutes, and then uh, I brought Steve Byrne on stage, and. Did, uh, did, and it was a wonderful night of comedy. Did anyone come up to you afterwards and said, "Man, and you were that was awesome." And people were like, "That's one of the best shows ever." It's so great. So, so great. So 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 in terms of like this charisma on stage, you talked about crowd work, you heard, talked about seeing what's on their face um and and responding to that. But again, I'm still trying to figure out like some of the the secret sauce of then kind of twisting that conversation to be something funny. Like, well, there's this feeling that if I say something to you, your dick's small, your girlfriend's ugly. Uh, there's two options. One is like, oh, we didn't like it because I'm edgy, which is a thing a lot of comics grab onto. Like, if I say something and it doesn't get a reaction, that goes through my head where I'm like, 
I could ride it. Yeah, I'm edgy for not because they don't agree. Sometimes edgy just means not good. Mm. Um, then you you want to bring them back around. You want to converse. You want to talk about whatever it is you're talking about. You you they don't have to love you, but you have you have to be funny. You know. So like in that situation, someone doesn't like you. Let's say a, so you say, make a joke about Trump. Someone likes Trump. They're unhappy. You see it. How do you turn it around? They hate you now. I had, I was in Philadelphia and there was this girl. She was drunk, falling asleep. And I go, oh, look at this. This is going to turn into a Cosby real quick. And she kind of woke up and like gave me the finger. And I was like, don't give me the finger you milk his prostate with. I don't need to see that. So she's like, fuck you. Cause you fucking, and we talked it through, talked for a minute. I'm like, why do you hate me? She's like, cause you, yeah, blah, blah, whatever she said. I moved on, went to something else, but this was out of the way already. We dealt with it, did some more shit, came back. Look, she's laughing. I'm like, won you back. By addressing those uncomfortable things, it, it makes them accessible again. And then, but also in there, like you say about her finger, that's what you milk his prostate <laughs> yeah. with. Like, is that like 17 years of analyzing your sets, going up 25 times a week? I've gotten the finger on stage a lot. So People so you, give me the finger a lot. So, so I had to come up with something because it was like, no, go fuck yourself. And you're like, no, think more. What, what's going to be funny? So it's, uh, what is it? It's conditioning where you, where you have to, you know. Right, and so now yeah, that the yeah. prostate milk line works a lot of the time. Most of the time when I get a finger, it's a quick response. I feel like, I feel like because, let's say you've been, someone's giving you the finger a thousand times, okay, now you've had the chance to not only respond a thousand times, but then think about it afterwards. How could I have responded yep. better? So you have like this huge arsenal compared to like, say someone who's been doing it for a year or two. Sure. And you know, and it's the same thing again for any skill. Like if you're a salesman for 25 years and someone says, no, I don't want it because of this, you have 25 years of experience of how to respond to that uh, objection to the sale. Yeah. So. I'm always trying to figure out though, are there ways to shortcut? Now, one way for me to shortcut is to talk to you and say, okay, these are things I have to be thinking about. Yeah. But, but does there... that actually shortcut or does that just make you aware of the things you need to work on? But I think awareness is part of it. Like, right. you know, let's say, let's say you know, I'll give you an example. Let's say in a in a business deal, you know that when you're anxious about whether the deal is gonna go through, you're gonna tend to make worse decisions than better decisions. So then you, then if, because you're aware of that, the next business deal, oh, I'm starting to get anxious. I better not make a decision right now and focus on my anxiety instead. So I know that from doing 25 years of business deals. So, but awareness in comedy too is important. Awareness of what I don't know and what I need to know is, or or golf, awareness of what, uh, you know, I need to know is is important to get better. Yeah. I say golf because I don't know anything about golf, but uh, lovely sport. But but, it, but but do you play golf? Yeah, but I haven't been playing a lot lately. I'm gonna get back to Florida and play. Uh, I I feel Very like relaxing. that's a classic sport where there's lots of sub skills, and you have to get good at all of them to be a good player. Yeah. So like you could get good at just putting, but that might not make you a good golf player. Or you could get good at like long drives, or I don't even know what they're called, yeah. but that won't make you a good golf player. But you have to get good at both. Right. So. And I'm trying with comedy to figure out what are all the sub skills. So there's kind of likability, sure. there's crowd like work. Likability, crowd work, writing, performance, uh, rebuttals. 
um, being prolific. What do you mean by prolific? Continually churning out new stuff. Mm. But then there's the the other side. I watch some guys that always have new stuff, but then they never polish it up, and it's never it's never ready for a special or anything like that. So, I mean, it really takes years to break. That's why so many comics don't really blow up until at least 20 years. You know, you see some exceptions to the rule, like a Michael Che or, you know, guys, everybody saw Che as this wunderkind. I remember we used to do Eastville together, and then next thing you know, he's, he's he was on Letterman, then he had Comedy Central job, then he had SNL. And so you watch these guys that are, you know, just exceptions to the rule, but a guy like a Louis C.K. who was the, best stand-up comic for a long time uh took him yeah at least 20 years yeah to really hit his stride and so so uh the other thing is is kind of the the business of what you do so you're obviously not just a stand-up comedian you've written books you have a radio show i was just on your show the other day um you were wonderful <laughs> thank you uh i don't know if i if that's true or not you guys it's hard keeping pace with you and, and Gino. It's a yeah. it's a high energy room. Yeah. So I had to I had to kind of I was like thrown into the fire and I had to keep from yeah from you did great up. and uh, uh, but you do you 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 do many different things. I think uh, that's an important thing too is that you kind of have to create and mold your own career uh, more than ever these days. You can't rely on one single path. Right. Like it used to be stand up to the Tonight Show to sitcom to celebrity. And that doesn't that path doesn't really exist anymore, or if it is, it's kind of just one path among many. Yeah, you the industry. They're still relevant, but people don't need the industry anymore. People don't need the gatekeepers anymore. Um, you look at guys that have established their own podcasts and their own followings. Uh, podcasts can do it. You know, you don't the the gatekeepers don't really matter. You can make your own specials now. You can make your own books now. So there's nothing, nothing holding you back creatively. Like uh, this, twenty five times in one night. Did you just con conceive of that, and make it yourself? Yeah, I was talking with somebody who was working with Morgan Spurlock at the time, and she's like, "This is a great idea for a documentary. You should shoot it." So I, I paid for it myself. We've been paying for the edits myself. The director's kind of on board now, and. Uh, and it's almost done. So, you know, hopefully we sell it for, you know, 10 times, 20 times what I paid for it out of pocket. And it's a good documentary. It's like a love letter to New York. And uh, it's so close to being done, but it's been two and a half years. Wow. Yeah. It's and, taken a and while. And Netflix, they're, they're spending like $10 billion on Netflix is ideally where it would go. I think like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon. I think Netflix probably. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what's the, is that just 25 times? What's the name of that documentary? The grind, and by the twenty fifth set, how did you feel? Exhausted. It was wasn't very good. The last few sets started going downhill. There was a good chunk in the middle, destroying. And are you just going around from club to club? Yeah. Did you do the cellar, or you was just all? Clubs? I wasn't in at the cellar at the time. I mean, I still haven't done <laughs> since I got passed. It's a major bone of contention with me, or not contention, but I'm just. Uh, People that are in there, they live and die by the spots that they get there. So when you get zero, you're like, well, I got zero, but I'm supposed to be working there. So it's a, it's a big thing. And uh, no, I, I did it. Let me see. Eastville, Greenwich Village, The Stand, New York Comedy Club, 
LOL Comedy Club. Um, Where's not stand up New York? Yes, I did stand up New York. Uh, did not do the comic strip. Did not do Gotham. Did not do Carolines. Did not do. What's the other one? Did not do the cellar. Did most of the clubs, and then many multiple appearances. Greenwich, I think, was three or four. The Stand was four. New York was four. Uh, and then a whole bunch of bar shows. I started at 3 p.m., went till about 2.30 a.m. And when you started at 3 p.m., is it starting with open mics? First show was a mic. So I did 17 club sets, five bar shows, three mics. You should call the Guinness Book of World Records and see if it... If... They want me to pay. Uh, pay. It's, it's newsworthy. It's media. Really? Yeah. She totally paid. You broke the record. This is the movie, the documentary that broke the record. All right. And then you probably were creating your own category, right? Like yeah, it is creating my own. Category. So yeah, because they had most jokes in a night. They didn't have uh, most sets in a night. What's uh, what? What do they want you to pay? I think it was three grand or ten grand. What the hell? You should totally pay it. What? All right. Because then you go, then you, then it's an extra media opportunity. You just want like free average. Guinness right? World Record holder. And Aaron you go Burr. on like. The uh, sh uh, some morning show, yeah, and and say you broke the record for this, and people are interested in that. And then what happens? And then more people are aware of who you are, and 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 buy the document, and then pe uh, maybe somebody sees it who says, "Oh yeah, uh, I want to buy this for Netflix or whatever." I'll All get right, the option on it. Okay. So I would I would definitely call Steve. Steve's the producer. 100%. Okay, Steve. All right. We're gonna we're gonna try to do that with this podcast. We're gonna invent our own category and figure out a, a record. Okay. Um, when we were at my birthday, you called Steve a Bronx landlord. Were you upset, Steve? No, I wasn't. It was very funny. I thought. I you we, Jasmine looked back at you and and said, "Boy, I think Steve is upset." No, not at all. I, was, I honestly thought it was very funny. I yeah. It was really good. Yeah. I called him afterwards. Like, Steve yeah. looked upset. He sent me an email saying he was really upset. <laughs> I I was upset he goes, "I would." Begrudgingly, like to have you on a podcast. I'm very upset. Well, yeah. it's funny because what I did do was that same day, the Daily Mail had a story about how a comedian was attacked on stage. Mm -hmm. And I sent it to He sent it to me. If, if I were more thin skinned, then this would yeah. have been my reaction. But I thought you were very funny. And, and at first, I go, Who the fuck's this email from? <laughs> and then, because uh, I didn't know, I thought it was from, uh, I thought it was from some black guys that were at a Named show. Cohen. No, <laughs> I don't think you put your last name on the email. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was great. I called you a Bronx landlord. You were there with your lover. Uh, <laughs> Our audio engineer, Jay, right yeah. there. You were there with your lover that you lay in bed with. There's also a lot of anti-Semitism. There was? <laughs> well, he's Jewish. So yeah, okay. I'm Jewish. I said, I said someone looks Jewy this morning, and someone got really offended. <laughs> and someone goes, no, he's Jewish. He's allowed to say that. It is. So, so okay, Final thing, we'll close it up. Uh, I am curious when you're doing writing because you you emphasize being prolific about writing is sort of important. Um, you have a premise. What goes through your head when you're turning a premise into a punchline? I don't think uh, I don't write set up punch unless I'm writing like a roast. It's just uh, I what was it called? God damn it, The Artist's Way which is a great book for creativity. Julia Cameron, Morning yeah. Pages. Yeah, and so basically live by that motto, I take care of the quantity, you take care of the quality. Letter to God. Uh, so I would sit, I just sit down and go, and it becomes this jazzy thing where it's just like, okay, let's talk about testosterone replacement therapy. So I'll start, here's how I 
went about going to get it the first time. Here's what happened. And then it just goes. It just goes. It, it's uh, it's free form. It's I, I don't write with a structure, and it works. All right, well, Aaron Berg... What do you, I don't know. I don't, you can see you everywhere. You're, you have the show In Hot Water as your radio show. You have um, your two books, Mr. Manners and then American Etiquette. Yeah, three albums. Uh, Mr. Manners Live from Long Island City, Comedy Coal Train, and Unscripted Live from the Comedy Inn. How do, how do the albums do? How does a comedy album do? My last one does very well. Um, it was it was basically a reading, like an audio book. I took the Mr. Manners book and went on stage in front of an audience for two shows at the standing room and read selected chapters. Um, and it's it's incredibly irreverent and uh, non politically correct. So that one uh, was number one for six days on Amazon. Oh, that's great. So yeah, it was. I mean, that's a good way to open. It, it sold a lot. But uh, most of that's due, you know, to uh, Compound Media and great people at Sirius, like Ron Bennington and stuff like that. Anthony Cumia, Ari Shafir really gave it a push. So it's the great people behind me. And and who are, who are some of the comedians who even now are influences on you? Uh, I, I look to Ari a lot for advice because Ari's one of those guys that kind of does it his way and isn't afraid to say no. So I, I'll just say about Ari because I, yeah. I I remember one time uh, I heard him in a conversation where he basically said in his twelfth year he stopped caring what the audiences think. Yeah, and then right afterwards he went up and I was in the back watching and I thought he was so funny. But the audience was not laughing yeah. at all. It was like his real intellectual kind of like here's the history of Hasidic Jews type yeah. of stuff, and the audience just it was silence. But he was so funny, and you could see he really didn't care. He yeah. knew he was funny. Yeah, he doesn't uh, he doesn't smash him, you know. But it's he, he's really got integrity and uh, great guy. So um, I look to him a lot. I mean Stanhope to me is is one of the kings of american comedy and see i think he's too angry it feels to me like he's ranting yeah as opposed to focusing on but it's all there the writing is like bukowski-esque yeah. you know the definitely there's so many layers to it um who else do i like uh i mean david tell wonderful always has been um is it, oh big jay okerson i think is hilarious but i i can't watch jay because I'll, I'll pick up on stuff he does, so I like intentionally don't watch him anymore. See, I I intentionally watch yeah. great comedians because I want to. At this point, I want to pick up mm -hmm. on what they're doing. Like there, I went through um, a, a couple of months ago. I went through a, a big Gerard Carmichael phase. Yeah, where because I watched his Poor show. You. Huh? Hmm? Poor you, poor <laughs> you. No, no, his he, it, he got he got the. Royal reigns handed to him. They gave him the industry. I think that's right. Yeah, they gave him. Because he had the show. Everything. He had a show. Oh, he had a show. He did a special that he had notes on stage for. And then he, he had Bo Burnham directed the show that I yeah. got obsessed with. His, yeah. The show Eight that's on HBO. But I like the fact the way he is like almost seemed. He has this persona where he's like grappling with difficult issues while on stage. Mm -hmm. So you you. Th you you think he's actually trying to figure it out right in yeah. front of you, and that is like funny to me somehow. It, he's laughs per minute and not laughs for, for every five yeah. seconds. So maybe that's what a lot of people don't like about yeah. him. 
I used to do that on stage at open mics where you'd just be talking stuff through and you're like, maybe it is wrong, maybe it is right. And it's really interesting to watch. Yeah. That inner struggle is a really interesting thing to watch. Yeah, because then the audience has a hard time hating you because mm-hmm. you you haven't yet said anything they hate. And if you do, you're allowed to say, but wait, I'm just thinking about it. What's your right. problem with it? Right. And it, it kind of, I saw him do that a couple times in the special and he won, won people over that yeah. way. Yeah. So, uh, all right, who, who, who's one or two more? Oh, boy. Louis C.K., other than? Louis, yeah, he's a wonderful comic. He'll come back. Um, other great comics. That... I'll tell you who I saw that had a, a great set. No, uh, no, you don't have to compliment me that much. <laughs> this James Gandolfini. Um, Joe Matteris had some great stuff on, like, the Me Too stuff. Tracy Morgan makes me laugh. I saw Tracy Morgan uh, at a comedy club a few weeks ago. He goes, I'm going to just come out and say this. Some of these Me Too bitches is straight-up liars. <laughs> and I just thought it was so silly and so innocent. He doesn't even know what he's saying is, you know, he, frowned he, upon. He criticizes uh, writers who go up on, with jokes. Yeah. He just goes up and does... And I, I think, looking at his early stuff, he must have been writing... But now I think he just goes up and does stuff. Yeah, Tracy, I mean, he's he's very fun to watch. And he goes, you know they was just trying to get a part of RoboCop movie or some <laughs> shit. And he and someone goes, Hey man, I'm here with my wife and my daughter. He goes, So fucking leave then. I don't care about your millennial politically correct opinion. This is a fucking comedy club. You but I'm I'm Tracy Morgan. I'm a verifiable Hollywood star. You better ask somebody. And the, the crowd is just staring at him because they had no idea that he was this old school great guy. I'm sure they recognized him from TV, but the comics were dying like. We need more of that in comedy. That that fucking I don't give a shit. That that's what it's all about. And I watched this the movement of you know these young upstart feminist comics uh, that have been doing it for four or five months, and they're like, why don't I have this? Why don't I? It's the straight white man is getting. It's like no, because you're not good. You're not funny, and you you can watch them. It's like what about, what about other crowd work guys like like let's say Judah Friedlander or Todd Barry. Yeah, I don't see. I see Judah a bit. Um, Todd Berry, really funny. They're, they're lower energy guys, though. You know, yeah. I like the guys that, and they're really, I like the guys that really push. I mean, Judah's crowd work, but he's also got some really good one liners in there. I like the guys that really push, the guys that, you know, leave leave the middle of the road in the dust and just go way over the line. All right. So, so, so. Uh, you're super high energy. I, I don't think of myself as high you're energy. Hi, you're super high energy. You're like, whole, oh my God. And uh, I feel like I'm a little lower energy, perhaps because of the Gerard Carmichael influence. How does one get to be a little higher energy? Somebody once went up after me and they go, I'm not going to be as high energy as your last comic. And I looked at the other two comics at the back and I go, maybe if she wasn't fucking sitting in bed all morning and eating haagen she'd have a bit of energy. Um, it was like a bigger woman. But uh, you, I, I don't think you can try. I've like curbed my energy. I used to do act outs. I used to do a whole bunch of stuff. And now like I sit on the stool. Like how... How high energy can I be when I'm sitting on a stool? I think it's just the speed with which you're just tearing yeah. apart the crowd. Yeah. So, but okay. So, so cut all the fat if you want to be. If you want to hit hard, cut all the fat. Anything that's like 
oh, here's a moment where they can think, cut all the, just go punch, 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 punch. I think it looks like high end. Like if you see someone working a speed bag, maybe that's what it's like. Like boom, 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 boom. Instead of a heavy bag, boom. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> you know, it's, maybe it's just a different it's a different uh form of pacing, the tempo's different. It's a beautiful thing though, isn't it? Yeah, so and um look, it's it's a, a pleasure always seeing you perform. Uh, I learn a lot each time and so glad you came on the podcast. Hopefully we'll we'll do this again when we break our Guinness Book of World Records. Aaron should come on again. Yeah. I'm an. Yeah, (laughs) thank you. I gotta make sure I get that Guinness Book of World Records certificate. Yeah, definitely do it. Send him the email of the of the Guinness guy. There's a guy in New York, right? Yeah, we got you. I think I have. I gotta pay three grand or ten grand to do it. Oh, Steve, they tell you. I'll have a GoFundMe. (laughs) Yeah, do it on GoFundMe, and that's how you get an audience for a a pre-audience for your documentary. Ah. So they can become aware of it, and they're already prepaying for it. Now, can we just take three hours before we go, and will you explain Bitcoin to me? (laughs) (laughs) And that will be the end of the podcast, ladies (laughs) and gentlemen. Thanks very much, Thanks for having me. What a treat. Next time on The James Altucher Show. Yeah, no, I wasn't okay. I wasn't okay, I think, for a long time afterwards, at least at some level. And it was stressing me out, too, trying to find a new place to live every single time but I felt like I had to do it or else I don't know I felt this very negative feeling towards the idea of moving into an apartment well because if you move into an apartment and you're not having to worry about moving to the next apartment then you actually have to sit alone and still with yourself and if you have to be still with yourself then you have to address the things that you're running from or that are haunting you or even mainly your fear of being alone. Hey, I am so glad you listened to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It will only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the podcast And my goal is to share this great content with as many people as possible. To see the show notes, just head on over to jamesaltucher.com slash podcast. While you are there, you can join my free insiders list to get notified when I post a new podcast. Every day, I also share my best and most controversial ideas. You won't get this stuff anywhere else. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.